welcome everyone back to day two, our final day together, talking about DBT-informed interventions for psychosis. Again, I'm Maggie Mullen, and looking forward to spending the rest of our time together. So let's do a quick review. So for those of you who have memories um, that don't always retain a lot of information, even day to day like mine sometimes, let's do a quick overview of what we talked about yesterday. So we spent, again, a lot of our time talking about kind of bird's eye view things around how do we apply DBT um, to people experiencing emotion regulation and also experiencing psychosis. So we talked a little bit about the DBT in research, principles and assumptions of DBT. Um, we talked a little bit about validation as a strategy and we started our conversation around mindfulness. We did that non-judgmental stance practice together. And then we kind of just uh, touched on the first part of distress tolerance, uh, specifically the first part of the tip skill yesterday. So we are going to be spending again, as promised, the rest of our time really just skill focused today. So we're gonna take us through the rest of distress tolerance as a module. We'll talk a bit about emotion regulation and interpersonal effectiveness this morning as well. And if we have time, we'll also do a behavior chain analysis for practice. So really quickly before we get started, I told you all yesterday about a handout that I was gonna give you. And instead I turned this into a slide. These slides were all emailed out to you by Chelsea, um, but it's called options for solving any problem. And I wanna just review this slide really quickly so people have an idea of what we were talking about. So this is something that we present to clients in DBT who are struggling with a problem situation. And it's really giving the opportunity for them to choose what they want to do to handle a situation in a more active kind of uh, conscious way of making a choice. So we say there are essentially four ways typically to solve a problem, right? The first of which is to solve it. Actually, if there are things that you can do Maybe it could be leaving or changing the situation in some way if you have the power to do that, right? Not all situations allow that, but some do. Next is to feel better about the problem. Essentially, you are managing your emotions uh, and working on right, maybe radical acceptance of the problem as it is. Next, we tolerate the problem, right? So this is really around accepting and tolerating the problem. So we can either change the problem itself, change our emotional reaction, or work on acceptance. And lastly, and this is a choice many of us make, uh, maybe unconsciously, is we can choose to stay miserable or even make it worse, right? There are times where we make this choice for ourselves. And so I will sometimes bring out this list when I'm working with a client, when they have a situation going on in their life, to think through, how do you want to resolve this? And if you wanna make the choice to stay miserable or make it worse, that's fine, right? I may sometimes do that in my own life, but I want you to make it in a active choice, like a active kind of conscious choice-making situation versus it's a passive thing that you just do uh, because you're not, don't have, feel like you have other options, you're not sure what else is available to you. So this is kind of a list to think through here. So let's move back to tip, which is what we were talking about uh, yesterday. So we talked briefly about temperature and intense exercise yesterday. And just as a quick reminder, tip is a great skill to be used in situations where you are feeling emotions of a six or seven or higher on that scale of zero to 10 of emotional intensity. And again, it's really about making physiological changes that are going to change your emotional state. So we're gonna talk about the last two of these skills today. So the, the P part, which is pace breathing and progressive muscle relaxation. So pace breathing, again, a lot of these things are very straightforward and you may know them from other modalities or other kinds of mindfulness practice. Now pace breathing is simply the practice of 
uh, putting your breath into a certain uh, rhythm, right? So again, when we are stressed, what typically happens, right, is that we tend to breathe shallow. We tend to breathe mostly just in our chest. We don't really breathe fully into our rib cage, into our abdomen, into our, into our belly. And so what I might do with client is say, okay, let's try, put one hand on your chest and one hand on your belly, and we're gonna do some breathing together. And actually, let's just do this for fun together right now for practice. I think we could probably all use this. Um, so what I'm gonna have you do is we're gonna do pace breathing where we're gonna start on a lower pace, meaning um, three seconds in, we're gonna hold our breath at the top and then exhale for five seconds. And for some clients, I'm gonna start with a longer pattern, maybe five seconds in, seven seconds out. But I think oftentimes, again, when we are stressed, we have more shallow breathing. We're not trying to force anyone into something that's not comfortable for them. So start on a lower number. So let's do this together for maybe two rounds. So again, if helpful, put your hand on your chest, hand on your belly here. If you feel comfortable, close your eyes. If you don't, just find a spot on the floor you can stare at away from your computer screen, ideally. And I'm gonna have you breathe in through your nose, one, two, three, hold it at the top. Exhale through your mouth, one, two, three, four, five. Same thing again. Inhale, one, two, three, hold. Exhale, one, two, three, four, five. So again, what we're working on here, and thanks for practicing this with me, is we are regulating our, uh, our uh, nervous system, right? We are trying to slow down our breath a little bit, to slow down our body. And many of you have probably practiced this many times before, but this is, again, kind of putting this intentionally into your self-care protocol uh, and or your clients as a, a skill or a tool that they can use. It goes a little bit beyond just deep breathing. Lastly, we're going to talk about progressive muscle relaxation. And this is a great skill. I'm going to refer to this as PMR for short. That is recommended particularly for people who deal with sleep issues. And a lot of our clients experiencing psychosis have issues with sleep. Um, and so this is going to be a good one to recommend for them both in their day-to-day -day life when they are feeling overwhelmed by stress, but particularly if they're dealing with sleep problems. So particularly, you know, trouble falling asleep or when they wake up in the night. So let's try this together a little bit as well. So the idea with progressive muscle relaxation is when you are stressed, right, your muscles tend to go into a contraction, right? Like where your shoulders go up to your ears, uh, your fists are clenched, your jaw is clenched, right? And you're kind of in this like partial contraction mode where it's really hard to let go of muscle tension. The idea behind PMR is that we are actually trying to make our muscles go through that full cycle of going from a fully tensed muscle, so up at its full kind of capacity, and then fully relaxed. So trying to bring it out of that partial contraction to a full contraction and then relax. So what you would do with a client, similar to a body scan, for those of you who are familiar with this, and you would be going up throughout their, uh, basically their general kind of uh, areas of their body. So starting with their feet, maybe through their calves, through their thighs, to their butt, to their abdomen, progressively going up through the body and squeezing, holding, and relaxing each of those sets of muscles. Now, for the sake of time, we're not going to do that all together. But what I'm going to do is just walk you through like two different muscle groups for fun right now just to give you an idea of what that looks like. So let's start together. Um, I'm gonna have us start maybe with our shoulders because you can actually physically see me doing that right now. So what I'm gonna have you do just to walk you through it first is you would have your muscles in a tight contracted position. I'm gonna have you hold it for five seconds 
And when I say relax, you're going to do your best to like fully relax, like really let it go when you can. And we'll do it two times for each set of muscles we're going to target. So I'm going to have you bring your shoulders up towards your ears in a contraction. Five, four, three, two, one, relax. Great. You can shake it out if that's helpful. But again, we're just trying to fully relax those muscles here. And again, you're trying to squeeze to the point that your muscles are tense. Do not hurt yourself though. This isn't meant to be like a self-harm activity. So again, up to your shoulders. Five, four, three, two, one, relax. Great. Okay, next one we're gonna do, uh, we're all gonna look a little silly for a second. So we're gonna do um, for our jaws, because a lot of us hold a lot of tension right here as well, right? So what I'm gonna have you do is you're going to tighten up your jaw, kind of like this. You make like a real grimace face when you do it. Um, I can't exactly do it with you and talk at the same time. So just pretend like I'm doing this right now, but we're gonna go grimace, hold that jaw again, five, four, three, two, one, relax. Same thing again. Hold that jaw. Five, four, three, two, one, relax. You're just letting it all go. And that's the idea behind PMR. Again, we're going up through each muscle group, starting with our feet, moving up to our head. And again, you can do this uh, in really fine detail, like really each muscle group by muscle group, or you can do more general categories depending on the time you have. And what I recommend to a lot of my clients is there are tons of YouTube videos that walk you through PMR. So if you want to use it without me, just Google PMR and you will find like dozens and dozens of videos with that. And same thing with paced breathing. So if they need some assistance to do it without you, those are totally available. Okay, great. So that is the end of the tip skill. So we're going to move now to our next skill, which is self-soothing. Again, self-soothing is going to be a skill that you are probably intimately familiar with. Both your clients use it regularly and you probably do too. Um, the reason we are going to talk about this skill again is to really intensify, I think, the, um, the way that our clients use this, meaning that they intentionally use it as a go-to rather than a passive thing they happen to do. So when my client is like, I'm feeling really upset about XYZ thing that happened, I want them to be able to be like, okay, on my list of things I can do is self-soothing. Which one do I want to choose right now? So again, you're just increasing that likelihood they're going to use it in an effective way. So self-soothing really works by utilizing your senses to help you feel calmer, to ease your mind, and really to better tolerate a stressful situation or problem. And you can use it through any of your five senses. If your client doesn't have access to one of those five senses, or if you have a client for whom they are very bothered by uh, hallucinations that are present in one of those areas, you may try to target a different sense. So for example, if I have a client who has a lot of olfactory hallucinations, meaning like smell-based hallucinations, we might target another area because that might be not effective for them, or we might intentionally target that area if it is effective. So just being thoughtful about that because hallucinations can show up in any of these five categories. So again, to give you some examples here, and there's plenty of course here, you know, for vision, we could be having our client um, looking out the window and looking at what is passing by them in the street, right? They could be looking at rain falling down. Um, they could sit in a park or look at beautiful trees. They could 
look at a photo of someone or something that they love, right? They could watch a funny TikTok video, um, anything that's accessible to them. For sound, that could be listening to soothing or invigorating music, pay attention to the sounds around you when you're sitting out in that park, for example, listening to a recording of waves crashing or thunder and lightning, again, whatever is soothing to that person. And again, for all of these, I strongly recommend that you have self-soothed uh, kits in your office, in your clinic, if you're out on mobile crisis, for example, things that you can bring with you that could be helpful to a client. For me, that often looks like me just popping out my cell phone and saying, what music do you want to listen to right now, right? And just looking that up and playing it for them wherever I am, for example. For touch, that could be having a warm blanket thrown around you or rubbing lotion on your skin. For taste, it could be something like, you know, a warm cup of coffee or tea which I like those in particular because they activate multiple senses, right? So not just uh, the taste of the coffee or tea, but also the warmth of it in your hand, for example, or the smell of it that can be really soothing for people. It could also be that you bring, you have candy or gum or a comfort food available to you, any of those being options. And lastly, for smell, it can be something like incense. It could be essential oils. I have a lot of clients who will buy like one little bottle of essential oils or I'll give them one um, that they can just carry around in their bag. They're very small, very easy to access or something that it smells that is comforting to them. So maybe the smell of a shirt of a loved one, right? Or something that just gives them a sense of comfort. And so again, thinking about how you can have these things if you don't already available in the spaces you work in is gonna be really important. Right, so having things that you can easily offer, it could be, you know, snacks, uh, it could be that cup of coffee or tea that you have available, that song that they want to listen to, et cetera, just to make those easily accessible um, and offered when your client does get overwhelmed when you're out with them. Next, we're going to think about distraction. And again, distraction, a lot of our clients are already using this. Um, and distraction works by giving you a break from interacting with whatever made you upset in the first place. So whatever the trigger potentially was in that moment. And it could be, um, you know, a situation like when you're feeling sad, for example, maybe you have tried switching on a movie or a podcast or music as a way to take your mind off the situation. And this is really an effective use of distraction because it allows that maybe intensity of emotions you're feeling um, to pass so you're in a clear headspace to make a decision. And once you're feeling overwhelmed by those, or excuse me, when you're feeling less overwhelmed by those emotions, it's easier to see the facts of the situation and maybe make a choice. For people with psychosis, distraction can serve also as a really nice tool to get help get their attention away from distressing voices if they might be experiencing those. One note about distraction, however, is that you can easily overuse it. So if rather than, for example, watching one episode of TV to take a break from the stressor, you end up spending the rest of the day binge watching that show um, and skipping out on the things that you need to do that day, like going to work or going to school or your responsibilities at home. You've moved from distraction as a helpful tool instead to distraction as a way to avoid a situation, right? And sometimes there are moments where we need to avoid something, but a lot of the times we actually need to re-engage in it. One thing about skills in distress tolerance is they're all acceptance-based, like I talked about yesterday. And that means that you are not making any change to the situation, typically. Sure, some stressors can come and go, but a lot of the times we're really just working on reducing the intensity of those emotions so that you can handle the situation differently because you're less an emotion mind and more in that wise mind state. So in this situation, 
you want to be using distraction thoughtfully. And the best way to do that, I think, is to just check in with yourself. So if you, again, started at a nine out of 10 in terms of your anger at that moment, and you're down to, let's say, a six or a seven after watching that TV show or whatever you chose to do, this might be a time to say, okay, let me re-engage and see how I'm doing here. So kind of just checking in with yourself to see where the intensity of that emotion is in that moment. So again, there are, I don't know, probably millions of forms of distraction, but I have a few here written on this list, right? It can be things like listening to music, wearing earplugs, reading, um, having a picnic outside, going for an, uh, some exercise, watching something funny, you know, anything in particular that is not replicating that client's same emotion. So for example, if I have a client who is really sad about something, I don't want them watching Titanic or a very sad movie at that time. I don't think anyone's watching Titanic anymore, but that's the first sad movie I could think of. But you don't want them to have something that just re-engages that sadness. You wanna have them watch something that maybe has a different emotion associated with it. So maybe something that is funny or something that is light or something that's trashy, right? Something that just kind of gives them a break from that specific emotion rather than deepening that same emotion. There's a time and place for watching sad things when we're sad. I mean, there's a lot of validity to that, but in a situation like this where you need to re-engage with the stressor and you're trying to reduce that emotion, this is not it. And let's kind of tie these all together now. So specifically for our clients who are dealing with distressing voices, I want to think about how we can use distress tolerance skills to help them. So the first three skills we've talked about, right? Distraction, self-soothe, and tip we've already reviewed together. And these are all things, right, that they can use when they are noticing distressing voices that are overwhelming them. But the other things in this list are a bit different, and I want to add these here. So at the bottom, you'll see use earplugs. And what we find is that for people who hear voices, one strategy that is helpful for a lot of them is to put in one earplug. And I don't mean an earbud that plays music. I mean an earplug like a foam one for, you know, when you're trying to sleep at night and block out noise. And we don't know exactly why this works for our clients, uh, what the mechanism is of it. But a lot of people find relief by putting that one earplug in as a way to block out voices. And again, this is something that you can easily provide to your clients as a way to try it out, right? Uh, a pack of foam earplugs, like a thousand of them at Costco is like $5, something very cheap and very accessible. You can keep them in that self-suit kit or bring them out to you so that you can practice using them with your client to see if it's helpful. Because, right, the same thing for all these skills somebody mentioned yesterday is you're going to have different levels of willingness for your client to use them, right? Their willingness to engage in this. Different levels of do they work in this moment versus do they never work for that client? Because that's part of why, again, we have such a large variety of skills that we offer. And so if I can just do it easily in the moment with the client, the easier it is, I think, for them to practice it on their own and also know if it's going to work or not. Next on this list is radical acceptance. So radical acceptance is a big uh, kind of headline distress tolerance skill. We're not necessarily going to go into super detail here because this is a pretty extensive topic. But really the idea here is that rather than trying to suppress or avoid or distract yourself from your voices, which are all strategies that sometimes are useful, the idea with radical acceptance is to consider communicating directly with your voices. So this might involve um, asking them what they need in order to relax or to go away. So kind of engaging with them and being friendly. Sometimes it's about asking them to come back later when it's a better time. 
Other times it might be about being firmer and telling them that you need to stop. But this is really about developing some kind of relationship with voices so that you feel like you have more power and control and also can have less distress because you are have the, or the ability to engage with those voices. So radical acceptance is another strategy. Again, we talked about at the beginning examples of like, what are situations that are safe and unsafe to use this skill? This goes for every skill that we're offering here, but figuring out with your client, what are situations where it's gonna be adaptive and helpful for them to communicate directly with their voices? And what are situations, again, where they might be punished for that? So kind of problem solving around that. Next is around reducing your stress, right? And this, again, will not be any surprise to anyone. We all need to reduce our stress. This is across the board. But of course, for particularly for people with psychosis um, who are hearing distressing voices, stress is one of the number one sort of uh, factors that influences how upsetting and how frequent their voices are going to be. So how much distress is caused by them and the frequency with which they occur. And so this really comes back to a practice of helping your client identify what their stressors are, um, kind of thinking through if any of them can be dealt with later, can we set them aside and plan to do, deal with them when you're feeling better? And for things that maybe can't be changed or put off, maybe it involves intentionally increasing your self-care activities for that time. Like again, doing any of the activities on this list, uh, doing, asking for help, exercising, doing relaxing or pleasurable activities, again, whatever is useful to your client including basics like making sure you get enough sleep at night, eating regular meals, um, and also in particular, avoiding situations that tend to be overstimulating, which is a big issue for people with psychosis, uh, or like, for example, being in a big crowd, having bright lights, right? Having a lot of noise. Those are things that often can be kind of triggering for our folks or overstimulating for our folks experiencing psychosis. The last one is talking. And the idea here is Many people find that when they speak out loud, they notice that their voices quiet down. So this could be something like calling a friend. It could be calling a, a hotline or a warm line or meeting up and chatting with somebody. It could be attending a group where they're speaking. Uh, and if you don't have anyone to talk to at that moment, it could be reading out loud or singing along to music. So somehow that you are vocalizing essentially for clients who are able to do that. And that is sometimes a way that can bring uh, some just uh, give our clients a break from hearing distressing voices. So again, each of your clients is so unique. And so you're going to want to try out all of these, in my opinion, with clients, unless you have one that works 100% of the time, which probably you won't. That's not really quite how these skills work just yet. But you want to give them, again, kind of this uh, I don't know, cornucopia, this whole platter of options available, and then having them pick and choose which ones are going to work for them. All right, so we are going to continue in distress tolerance, but what we are covering next are skills specific to people who are struggling with drug use. And again, we I mentioned at the beginning, uh, drug, or excuse me, specifically like issues around or problems around drug use are a really common co-occurring issues for our folks experiencing psychosis. Again, there are many functional reasons in which our clients use drugs. So we're not taking a blaming approach. We're taking a non-judgmental approach like we talked about before. But we really want to work on these strategies to help them reduce or possibly stop drug use. And one of the specific things that I would keep in mind here is if you're thinking of some of your clients who maybe don't use drugs, these are skills that are also useful for any problem behavior they may engage in. So for example, um, this could be things like uh, 
uh, gambling, overspending, risky sexual behavior, excessive video game playing, uh, anything that is a problem behavior your client is trying to target and change, these can be useful. So feel free to adapt as you need to. Some of the language is gonna be specific around drug use, but they'd absolutely work for other folks. So we're gonna talk about pros and cons, urge surfing, alternate rebellion, and community reinforcement. And one note that I have down here at the bottom that I think is just sort of worth reiterating, we talked about before, is that drug use appears to be a significant predictor of non-suicidal self-injurious behavior in folks with psychotic spectrum disorders and specifically most commonly with folks who are using marijuana heavily. So meaning again, I mentioned this before, but particularly for our folks who are using marijuana, but using any drugs, it's important to screen for drug use and non-suicidal self-injurious behavior. So particularly around cutting. So starting with pros and cons. So uh, again, many of you may be familiar with pros and cons. DBT takes the pros and cons list sort of like one step further, I think, than a traditional pros and cons list where we are looking at not only pros and cons, but specifically the short-term and long-term pros and cons of things and comparing two different charts. One of doing the same thing I'm already doing, right? So maybe we're gonna go through an example together, but smoking marijuana daily. And then we compare to a similar chart of making a change and kind of what it would take to do that. So when I start working with a client and they're engaging in some kind of uh, problem behavior and are not sure whether they wanna change that, that problematic behavior just yet, or maybe they are ready. One of the things that we will start with is a pros and cons chart to look at this. And again, this can be for drug use, but this can also be things like maybe stopping medication or self-isolating or another kind of problem behavior here too. So I'm gonna to refer to this, this case example as Sammy. Um, and Sammy in this case, we're gonna look at together is struggling with marijuana use. And for Sammy, he knows that when he uses marijuana, he, it often increases his suspicious thoughts. And so he's really trying to consider like, realistically, should I be cutting back or stopping marijuana? And he's pretty ambivalent at this point, which makes sense. And so a pros and cons list really is one place that we can have Sammy turn to, to make sure that he's making a decision for himself that is wise-minded, meaning that he's making decisions that are in line with his long-term goals, while also validating his emotions in the present. So what we would look at to start in this chart here, and I've kind of filled in some answers here that Sammy has given me, are starting with what are the short-term pros of specifically smoking marijuana daily? What do you like about it, right? So he might say some things to me like, it takes my mind off my problems, it gives me immediate relief from my symptoms, for example. And then we look at the long-term, what is this doing for you in the long-term? It's an easy way to manage my anxiety, might be something that he shares with me. And we really wanna explore the pros here because of course, there's a reason Sammy is using weed daily. We don't wanna override or kind of not examine the reasons that it is working in his life. What are the things that he likes about it functionally? And then we go to the cons list of, again, short-term, what are the downsides of using weed? So I feel more paranoid. I can't do my work well or drive when I'm high. Uh, I eat more when I'm high. I feel guilt or embarrassment afterward, you know, again, whatever comes up here. And then long-term, uh, when cons, we're also looking at what are the downsides long-term? And some of our clients may not have taken a moment to examine this yet, particularly I think for our young adults, uh, they may not have really thought through like how do certain behaviors I do now impact my future, right? Like a lot of us didn't when we were younger for various kinds of reasons that are developmentally appropriate. But what we wanna look at with them is like, 
if you are having trouble, for example, in the short term doing certain things, how do you think that'll impact the future for you? So Sammy comes up with this list here of, you know, it increases my symptoms so I can't do as well at work and I have certain career goals of things I want to be doing. And also I live in a capitalist society where I need to make money. So that's important. Um, it might, he might talk about, you know, it damages my relationship because I have difficulty trusting people because I have those suspicious thoughts. Weed is expensive, costs money. I don't have a lot of that right now. And maybe even things like the cost of hospitalization um, or more medical care that I have to deal with when I, you know, smoke more weed and I get more symptomatic. So again, we're really trying to fully look through what are the upsides and downsides, short and long-term of smoking weed daily. And then we're gonna turn to this next chart, which is, okay, if you are to try a new behavior, and this could either be reducing or stopping marijuana, and we wanna choose one just for the sake of this conversation to make it easy to do this, but we might work on stopping marijuana, right? If that feels right. And if we're doing more of a harm reduction perspective, it could be reducing marijuana use. But just for the sake of this, we'll say stopping. I wanna look through again with Sammy and think, okay, so in the short term, what are the upsides of stopping marijuana use, right? So he talks about my mom doesn't bug me about it as much. I'm less paranoid, less suspicious. Long-term, um, it might have positive impacts on my mental health stability. I might be able to avoid hospitalizations or making ineffective decisions. It's less money than hospitalization to stop smoking weed. And again, we really wanna look at what are the downsides to this new behavior? Like what's stopping you essentially from making this change at this time? And so Sammy might talk about in the short-term downsides are things like I have, I have to find other ways to deal with my anxiety, right? Like that is a big stopper for a lot of people. Or um, I, most of my friends smoke marijuana. It would be very difficult to figure out like how to navigate friendships with them without it. And then Sammy had difficulty when I was working with him figuring out long-term cons, but I'm sure there could be some if we really spent a lot of time thinking about it. So what we do then is once we've created these two tables, and again, we're, this can take a lot of time to do with the client, um, we might then go back and say, okay, so Sammy, looking at this first chart around pros and cons of smoking marijuana, continuing what you're doing right now, we want to think through are the short-term pros, meaning the things like it takes my mind off my problems, I get immediate relief, worth the long-term effects of doing this? So worth the bottom right corner here, these long-term cons. So are having your mind taken off your problems and getting immediate relief worth possibly increasing your symptoms, you can't do well at work, damaging relationships, cost of marijuana, cost of hospitalizations, is that worth it? And only Sammy can answer this question, right? I might have ideas, but Sammy has to tell me like yes or no, or maybe. And then we flip back to this second set of pros and cons and think through, okay, now, if you wanted to make this change, would you be willing to get help managing the short-term cons? So again, bottom left corner here of having to find other ways to cope with your anxiety and managing your friendships with people who still smoke weed in order to get those long-term pros, so top right corner. So would you be willing to get help managing your anxiety and managing friendships in order to get the pros of increasing your mental health stability overall, avoiding hospitalizations or making you know, ineffective decisions, um, dealing with you know, less expenses from hospitalizations, so saving money, 
would you be willing to get help with that? And that's really where my job comes in, right, is to think through then what are the things we could be doing, right? What are the things we can do to help you deal with the short-term cons? Because those are very real. Again, those are often the things stopping us from making a change. And there are things I know how to do to help you to manage this. And so in CME's case, the skills we're going to talk about in the rest of this module are going to be the types of things I might offer him to help deal with, for example, um, ways to manage your anxiety when you're trying to cut back on smoking weed, for example. So one of the first skills that I might offer Sammy is a skill called urge surfing. Um, and this is a skill that was graded by Dr. Alan Marlott that allows you essentially to wait out urges to use drugs or you know, engage in any other problem behavior and do so without acting on those urges. So essentially, can you experience an urge to use drugs without actually acting on that urge? The thing about urges is that they tend to excuse me, they tend to pass on their own if you allow them to. But people tend to get stuck on their urges because they focus on them, right? We ruminate about them, we make plans to act on them, and we kind of keep them going in our head over and over again. And so when your client has maybe a strong urge to use drugs, what you would do would be to walk them through the following practice we're going to talk about of urge surfing. So there are two different ways to do urge surfing. There is, uh, we're gonna start with one and then we're gonna do a second one together. So again, this is a practice we're gonna do together right now. And what I want you to do, again, you can close your eyes or you can focus on a point on the ground in front of you, whatever you wanna do. What I'm gonna have you do here is identify one urge you have right now. So it could be the urge to shift in your seat. It could be the urge to get up and go to the bathroom. It could be the urge to stop listening to me talking or it could be the urge to send a text or an email right now, look at your phone, any kind of urge you're having right now, I want you to notice it for a second. And specifically, I want you to notice where you physically feel it. So it could be a sensation in your mouth, it could be in your abdomen, in your hands. You might notice some pressure somewhere or some tension or sweating even. And I want you to just notice that for a second. And if it's helpful, you can describe it in your head or you can even describe it out loud. You're all on mute. You can talk as much as you want here. And it might be saying something to yourself like, I feel a tingling sensation in my hands. Uh, or it could be something like my mouth is watering or I feel my bladder pulsating right now, whatever it is. And describing out loud can often help us focus on it if you notice things like thoughts or voices that are distracting you away from this practice. Great. Okay. So the idea, just we're gonna pause this practice for a second. The idea with this practice is you are essentially physically noticing where an urge lies in your body. And if we continue on this exercise, then we choose a second place we feel it and kind of go on for a little bit longer with the idea that we are essentially allowing ourselves to notice an urge and write it out. So sort of like a wave coming and going, we're just riding that wave out without doing anything to change it, but practicing our mindfulness. Now, for clients who struggle with this, Right? We have some clients for whom the idea of um, 
doing a mindfulness practice like this may be really difficult for them to tolerate, there is another option you can use. And this is to have your client, when they notice the urge to use drugs or again, engage in whatever problem behavior, you're gonna have them set a timer on their phone or you know, whatever uh, device they have access to and set that timer for let's say five minutes. And the goal is in that five minutes, they're gonna do anything besides use drugs. And this might be engaging in skills like distraction or self-soothing, um, you know, things we've talked about in distress tolerance, for example, to get through that time. Whatever they feel like they need that would be helpful to helping them ride out that urge, again, without doing something to make it worse. So you wanna encourage your client not to spend that whole five minutes thinking about how they're gonna access drugs, right? Cause that's the temptation that a lot of our clients have that again, keep that urge kind of going. But again, taking their mind off of it by doing something a bit different. And then when that timer goes off after five minutes, the idea is your client is going to check in with themselves to see has that urge gone down or does it feel the same or higher? And then consider setting a timer for another five minutes to see could it be another five minutes that I don't use drugs and try this thing again. And again, the idea here really is that you want to get them to a place that their urge has gone down enough that they don't feel like they need to act on it with the same urgency they previously had. So kind of the goal being to allow that urge to naturally pass for your client. And that's how urge surfing works. Pretty straightforward, yeah? Um, there's a question from earlier, how to cope with the body that keeps all the trauma in the body? How do you relieve those stressors body keeps for? Um, okay, let me see if I can answer this question. So this is a little bit open-ended, so I'll give you my interpretation, but... Um, a lot of treatments that are behavioral and cognitive sometimes don't get credit for how much we actually do around somatic changes. So um, I think sometimes there's this line that gets drawn between like somatic modalities and cognitive or behavioral therapies when there's actually quite a lot of overlap. So for example, the skill that we just did is a really specific somatic skill, right? We're, we're focused on those sensations that are happening because I think for a lot of our clients, their ability to recognize an emotion or an urge, or even a thought, sometimes starts physically in their body of what they feel. Um, and so when we start from that place, it can be more helpful than asking a client, hey, what are you thinking right now? What's the thought you're having? So sometimes we have to kind of tie those together and help our client on that journey. Um, one thing to also note is that stage two treatment of DBT is focused exclusively on trauma treatment. So the way I kind of compare these are for like stage one that we talk about sometimes in trauma treatment is the equivalent to um, our same thing in DBT of phase one. So meaning we're working really on helping clients reduce those behaviors and uh, that are problematic, right? So that's self-harm, suicidality, et cetera, that get in the way of being able to treat their trauma more specifically and helping them work on emotion regulation, being able to experience their emotions safely, et cetera. So that when we get to stage two of treatment, we can specifically target their PTSD. And we do that typically through a specific uh, exposure-based protocol called DBT prolonged exposure therapy. And it's really meant for people who have really complex trauma, meaning people who don't often benefit from other trauma treatments because uh, their experience of trauma has been very chronic and also maybe is co-occurring with all kinds of other issues that they're experiencing, right? So drug use, self-harm, suicide, et cetera, things that put them at kind of higher risk in doing this treatment. So I don't know if that quite answers your question, but that's, that's kind of how I'm going to interpret it for now. So let's move on to alternative rebellion. Okay, so 
when we talk about what's the function of a behavior, like we talked about yesterday, a lot of people, not all, but many people use drugs as a way to rebel against something, right? Often we're trying to rebel against our family, maybe your symptoms or diagnosis, an institution, could be conformity or boredom or something else entirely. And rebellion can take the form of things, statements like, don't tell me what to do, or thoughts like, I'm done trying to please this person. And there are lots of good reasons to want to rebel against situations that you don't like or you're sick of or that are oppressive in some way. However, drug use can sometimes come with complicated problems for people experiencing psychosis. So alternate rebellion is a skill specifically that is meant to help our clients harness that, uh, you know, healthy rebellious spirit, but do it in a way that is more effective to their long-term goals rather than harmful to them in some way. So I really, I'm somebody who's quite rebellious. I've always been my whole life. I think rebellion can be really fun and there are plenty of ways that we can do it safely. And this skill is really focused on this. Okay, so let's talk about what this looks like. So alternate rebellion could take the form of any of these things in the slide and plenty more. So it could be, this is a list of people, things that my clients have shared with me at some point. So it could be sleeping in or waking up, whatever's the opposite of what you would do and feel rebellious making a mess and not cleaning up right away, getting a piercing, changing your hairstyle, maybe saying no to somebody, being part of a political movement or participating in a protest, so making your voice heard, playing loud music and dancing around, speaking up rather than staying quiet, could be dressing in a way that feels rebellious to you, uh, debating somebody about politics. My, one of my favorites, my client shared with me, is peeing in the shower is her a rebellious kind of spirit making up her own language and speaking it, giving people strange looks, showing up late or early to something, the opposite of whatever I would normally do, fart in the elevator, another personal favorite, right? These are things, again, that are things that are out of character for your client to do that would still feel like they're getting that rebellious spirit out, but with fewer consequences. Now, of course, with everything on this list, as we were talking about before, context matters. So you want to church kind of take a harm reduction approach to this too, right? Like giving people strange looks, right? Like are there situations where that's gonna put your safety at risk? Like consider that of course. But in general, if you can do these things in a way that is relatively harmless, and again, gets that feeling out, absolutely have them engage in this. And it, this can be really fun. I love doing these with my clients because they think they're really silly and very fun. Um, and they come up with really wonderful kind of ideas. So keep these in mind for your clients as well as for yourself to try out. Okay, and our last distress tolerance skill around drug use specifically is community reinforcement. So again, if you are working with clients for whom drug use isn't their primary problem behavior, you can substitute these things for other things. Uh, so other types of community spaces. So the reason we talk about this is as behaviorists, right, we think about the impact that reinforcement and punishment has on all of us. And one of the strongest factors that maintains drug use for people, specifically to manage emotions, is reinforcement. And reinforcement, right, is essentially anything that encourages you, you to engage in a behavior by rewarding you for doing it. So, for example, when you give a dog a treat after she sits when you, she's told to, you're reinforcing her behavior with that reward, right? And that treat then increases the likelihood the dog will do this behavior again in the future. Now, this same strategy works for humans. We're actually almost not at all different than animals in this regard. So for example, with drugs, they provide us with reinforcement in the form of things like a break from negative emotions, feeling high, 
uh, maybe a withdrawal or excuse me, a break or relief from withdrawal symptoms that could happen from not using drugs. There are all kinds of powerful reinforcers that happen. And this feeling or this reinforcement in turn makes it more likely that you're going to use drugs again, right? And kind of get into the cycle potentially. And because reinforcement happens so immediately with drug use, almost often right away, it's often more powerful than the negative consequences or the punishment that can also come with drug use later on, right? Such as feelings of guilt and shame that happen later on for some people. And that immediate reinforcement is a big part, I think, for many people of what causes dependence on drugs. So again, kind of getting into that cycle. So community reinforcement essentially is about finding places or activities that reinforce you to not engage in drug use or encourage you to reduce your use to a place that's safer for you. So you're trying to find other forms of reinforcement that will, again, kind of increase your likelihood to reduce your drug use. Okay, so let's look at this list. So again, these are very specific to drug use, but again, could be anything for your client. So this could be attending community groups, right? So Refuge Recovery, Dual Diagnosis Anonymous, AA, whatever community makes sense to them. It's about spending as much time with people who don't use drugs and avoid people who do use them, right? This is pretty straightforward to a lot of you all. Asking your loved ones to praise or reinforce you when you're not using drugs. It could be doing activities that you enjoy that don't involve drugs or trying new ones. It is spending time in places where people are sober or just not actively using drugs. And I think powerfully, right, this is about rewarding yourself when you make a change in your drug use by doing something special for yourself, right? It could be something like buying yourself your favorite meal, taking a long bath, um, giving yourself something small if that's possible, uh, giving yourself verbal praise, right, kind of like a pat on the back for yourself, getting your nails or hair done if you can afford it, praising yourself, you know, figuring out something that is reinforcing to you because it's not always the case that other people are around to reinforce us. Sometimes we are the only people who can reinforce ourselves. Um, but this is a really powerful tool that we use, I think, um, across all modalities, but particularly in DBT, where we try to intentionally reinforce our clients. And so one of the things I would think about for yourself as a provider is talking to your client about what is reinforcing to them, right? So for a lot of our clients, our go-to is praise. And what you may notice is there are a lot of clients don't like praise and they don't find it reinforcing. In fact, they find it punishing. Like as soon as I start giving them attention like that, they're like, oh no, like this is this actually feels awful. So what I'm gonna ask my client, particularly at the beginning of treatment is what reinforces you, right? Do you like praise? But do you also prefer instead if I bring you cookies, right? Or if we get to spend the last five minutes of our time together talking about whatever uh, TV show you're super into right now, or um, whatever game you're playing or like whatever activity they're interested in, right? I had one client for whom when she did something that we decided we would reinforce for her, we'd spend the last 10 minutes of that session talking about recipes she was excited about cooking that week because she was uh, uh, you know, very into cooking. So figure out what is reinforcing to your client and you can work with that yourself as a provider, but also then you work on how do we get more of that in your environment? Like how do we get other people around you to be doing this as well as how do you reinforce yourself when you've done these things that you can feel proud of? Okay, so that is the end of distress tolerance. Okay, so emotion regulation is where we're going next. And emotion regulation specifically refers to strategies or skills that will help you better manage and reduce the frequency of challenging emotions, such as things like anger, jealousy, sadness, shame, et cetera, 
And emotion regulation is really about emotion management. And specifically in this module, we explore with our clients, what are emotions? Uh, what are ways to increase pleasurable emotions, such as happiness or love? And how to reduce, again, those challenging emotions. So people with psychosis, as I mentioned a little bit yesterday, tend to have more difficulty being aware of understanding and accepting difficult or challenging emotions than others. So this means that emotional identification and validation is an important skill that we need to work on with our clients. So the way that self-validation works is actually to reduce the intensity of our emotions. So again, for example, using that scale of zero to 10 that we talked about earlier, I might say something to myself like, I'm feeling so angry right now. This is really tough. And I feel like a seven on this scale. So not only am I identifying in my emotion, but I'm also using a self-validation practice, which is I'm giving space for my emotion by simply naming it and experiencing it as real, right? Rather than trying to suppress it or avoid it, et cetera. And one of the cool things that happens by that is the intensity of our emotions tend to reduce when we self-validate. So not only are we kind of, again, increasing that mindful awareness to know we are feeling a certain way, we might need to do something about it, but also just by naming it, we reduce the intensity of it. So with my clients experiencing psychosis, I might bring in a handout like this for them. And I start really through the process of how to identify what your emotions are so we can work on validating them. So step one is, what emotion are you feeling right now? And for some of my clients, they can more readily identify an emotion if I give them a list. And for some people, that's still a challenge. For some people, again, with different kind of cognitive issues or uh, learning needs, we might also bring out uh, one of those, uh, there, there's uh, those documents that have like different pictures or different emotions on them, like the faces of happiness or the faces of various things. I might use something like that. That could be helpful too. And particularly for people who are stuck on this still, what I might instead turn to then is let's think about what urge you're feeling right now, because that might illuminate what emotion you're feeling. So for example, if you have an urge to attack someone or something, you might be feeling angry right now, right? If you're feeling the urge to um, apologize or make a repair, it sounds like you might be feeling guilt, right? If you are having an urge to run away or fight back, again, fear, right? And kind of going through this list because a lot of our action urges tend to be associated with emotions. And so sometimes if we can identify, like, what do you want to do right now? What are you having the urge to do right now in my office, for example, we might be able to get at what the emotion is. So that's another kind of way of getting at, at this. And then, then we look at, again, that scale of how intensely are you feeling your emotions? And again, if this zero to 10 thing doesn't work, there are plenty of other ways that you can ask this. But thinking through how much is this, right? It could be a thumbs up scale where it's somewhere, you know, between up and down. Uh, it could be high, medium, and low, you know, whatever is going to work for your client's abilities here. But really trying to get a sense of not just what is the emotion, but how intense is it right now. And then lastly, this is where we work on self-validation. So this is really helping your client come up with a statement that they can use to validate their emotions. And for some clients, it's going to be as simple as, I'm feeling angry right now. It feels like a 10 out of 10, right? That's self-validation. Again, we're naming what's real. And for some of our other clients, we might have something like, it makes sense that I feel angry based on what happened, right? Or there's nothing wrong with me for feeling this way. Or this emotion is natural and will pass with time. I can get through this. So there's a little bit of even self-encouragement in some of these statements or self-compassion. 
And again, this is really just a way for your client to kind of remind themselves that their emotion is real and that they have the ability to get through it. So once your client has an idea, again, kind of using that mindfulness skill that they have to identify their emotion and validate it, we might be looking at skills like ABC Please. And ABC Please is an emotion regulation skill that is focused on reducing your overall emotional vulnerability and increasing the likelihood of pleasurable emotions to create more emotional balance in your life. So let me say this a different way. So meaning uh, reducing emotional vulnerability means reducing the things that make you more likely to get emotionally overwhelmed, right? So for those of you who are familiar with like an AA model, it's the HALT idea, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Um, but there are plenty of other things that go on that list that we're going to talk about. It also, the skill involves, again, if we have kind of a balance here, right, with pleasurable emotions on one hand and challenging emotions on the other, all humans experience both of these, right? Not an equal degree, but in some regard. And what we experience with our clients experiencing psychosis tends to be that their challenging emotions often outweigh the pleasurable ones. So what we are doing with our clients then is intentionally increasing the pleasurable emotions in their life to make that more balanced. Because our goal again in DBT is to make um, build a life worth living, having a meaningful world to live in, not just something that you're in misery all the time and trying to get through. So the first part of this skill involves accumulating positive emotions. So again, this is the part about kind of, again, leveling out those scales by helping your clients increase the number of pleasurable activities they do every day. So the idea is that every day we want our clients to do something that is pleasurable. This doesn't have to be like, go take a vacation type of pleasurable, although that's lovely if that can happen. What we're talking about is something even very micro or very tiny, right? It could be listening to your favorite song every morning to get you pumped up. It could be about um, sending a text to a loved one, right? It could be about uh, you get to eat one thing that makes you really happy every day, right? Whatever it is, it needs to be something that you're doing every day. Um, because particularly if you're having a lot of hard days or a lot of days that are challenging, or maybe your psychosis is really flared up, again, we need to intentionally increase those pleasurable activities. And in particular, when your client does that pleasurable activity, the idea is to try to focus their attention on it fully. So doing that activity or that experience mindfully. Because it's really easy, I find, for my clients to do the activity and pay zero attention while they do it and not actually experience the pleasurable emotions. So it involves kind of, again, increasing that intentionality about how they're using that skill. One thing I may even have them do, too, is rate that activity. So maybe where their mood is before during and after the activity, because it gives us a little bit of a data point around, is that actually something you find pleasurable or is that just something people tell you that you should like, right? There's sometimes a difference between those two. So our next skill here is around building mastery. And building mastery is the idea that doing things that give you a sense of accomplishment makes us uh, increase our pleasurable emotions. So this could be something like an activity that you're good at, right? If you're good at, um, you know, playing an instrument or you're good at, I don't know, doing something around the house, it's about doing that. It also could be doing things that have a concrete outcome to them, right? So for me personally, uh, one of the things that I like most is doing things like laundry, right? Where there's a very clear before and after, right? Like I know when laundry is dirty 
And I know when laundry is clean and done, right? When it's like folded and put away. And so those are the types of things that I think can give us a sense of mastery, either because we're good at doing them um, or because they give us a sense of uh, kind of completeness afterward. So this might be going through with my client, like what are the things that you consider yourself good at? What are the things that you like to do? And again, trying to increase their likelihood of doing those regularly. And again, these don't have to be good things. Your client doesn't need to be a really skilled musician, for example, to do these types of things. It can be that they're a good friend to somebody else, right? Or they're a good listener. And so that means that they try to intentionally, you know, talk to people, for example, and build those relationships. Um, it could be something like, um, I don't know, they're really good at uh, getting the dog to do certain tricks, right? And like teaching the dog behaviorism. And so your client do, you know, maybe one different trick that they can teach them once a month or something. You know, whatever you can get your client um, to do and something they'd be excited about doing and trying to increase the likelihood that that happens. So moving now to the C part of the skill is coping ahead of time with emotional situations. So this is really the idea that if you know a stressful situation is coming up in your life, Rather than simply spending your time ruminating or worrying about it, like many of us tend to do, the idea here is to think through a plan ahead of time so that you're prepared to cope with it skillfully. So for example, if I know that I have a difficult conversation with my boss coming up and my brain keeps worrying about maybe that I'll get fired or I'm going to, uh, or that, you know, I'm going to be embarrassed or reprimanded in some way. What I might do is think through ahead of time, what can I do to prepare for the worst case scenario that my brain keeps thinking about, right? What, what does it keep ruminating on? And maybe in this scenario, it's that I'm going to get fired. So then I'm going to think through, okay, in the unlikely event that I get fired, because maybe I haven't made any big mistakes at work yet, what I'm going to think through is what could I do maybe immediately before this meeting? What could I say during it? And what could I do afterward? So for example, Maybe I would say after the meeting, I would use a tip skill. I'd have a friend on deck that I could call for support. I could stop by and pick up my favorite meal on the way home. Um, I could prepare my resume afterward so that I can start applying for new jobs. Right? These are really the types of things that give our brain a break from worrying because at least we're like, well, at least I'm prepared for the worst case scenario. Right? I compare this to similar to um, in California earthquake preparedness drills. Right? We hope that the worst case scenario doesn't happen in an earthquake and we prepare for it ahead of time so that I don't have to spend every day worrying about what's gonna happen if there's an earthquake, right? I have my earthquake su uh, supply kit, I have my escape uh, route and how I'm gonna meet up with my family, all that stuff already planned so I don't have to spend every day ruminating about it because if I didn't have those things, I probably would as somebody who is not originally from California, earthquakes scare me. So that is the coping ahead skill. Again, give your brain a break from the anxiety and the rumination that tends to happen in situations like that. The last part of this skill, the please part down here, is about finding ways to, again, reduce those emotional vulnerabilities, right? The things that make it more likely that you're going to get very emotionally overwhelmed or emotional easily. So again, a, a common example here is for people who get hangry right? If you haven't eaten enough, you're more prone to become irritable, uh, or maybe in my case, even rageful at times. Or if you are somebody when you haven't slept a night the night before, slept enough the night before, or if you've been drinking, or if you're experiencing PMS, right? These are the types of things that can make it more likely we are going to be more strongly emotional in response to things that otherwise wouldn't affect us or not affect us so much. 
So this section here is really focused on the things that you can, can do to prevent those. And granted, we can't always prevent everything, right? I can't tell my client, you absolutely need to get a good night's sleep and eat food and make sure you're taking your medicine and you know make sure you're going to the doctor every day, or excuse me, when you need to. What I can do though is say, if we do enough of those things regularly, it's going to reduce the likelihood that I'm gonna experience those. And if I don't sleep well, let's say one night, then maybe the next day I make different choices about what I'm gonna do because I know that I'm gonna be hit harder emotionally by this. Like maybe I won't, if there's things I can avoid engaging in, uh, maybe if it, that's a day where I say like, I okay, like let me give myself a little bit of like self-compassion because I'm probably gonna be more weepy than I normally would be or whatever it would be. So thinking through those things. So again, that includes things like um, your diet, right? For our clients, this means eating intuitively for their bodies. Uh, for many people, that means eating regularly throughout the day, making sure that your blood sugar stays stable, um, staying away from foods that maybe make you personally feel more emotional. For example, things with lots of refined sugar can sometimes give us that blood sugar spike that makes us more emotional. But again, it's independent to each person's individual body chemistry. This could be things like avoiding mood-altering substances. We call them mood-altering substances for a reason, right? Because they tend to in, impact our emotionality on some level. And that includes things like tobacco and uh, caffeine, right? As part of that kind of uh, cluster of things. This is around prioritizing sleep. And frankly, sleep hygiene for people experiencing psychosis deserves its own independent lecture because there are so many, I think, specific components to this for our clients and why it is so critical for them to get good quality sleep in order to prevent future episodes. But this might be working with your client around maybe CBT for insomnia strategies. It could be around sleep hygiene strategies, like, again, uh, waking up and going to bed at the same time every day, creating a sleep routine, wearing eye masks or earplugs if they're in a place where it is loud, for example, if they're sleeping on the street. Um, and DBT actually has a protocol. We're not going to go through it, but for people who experience nightmares, um, it's part of the DBT skills workbook you can check out. But it, uh, a lot of our clients experience kind of repetitive nightmares, particularly ones that are trauma related, that can be helpful for breaking free from that. And lastly, exercising regularly, right? Something that can get you feeling active in your body every day. Again, helps with sleep, helps with mood, helps with appetite, helps with you know all kinds of spectrum of things that people are aware of as far as health too. So this list could go on, right? There are a lot of other things that we can do to kind of keep our clients' basic needs met. Like for example, um, if you are taking medications, taking them regularly, right? Because when we skip doses of meds or we stop them suddenly, that tends to change uh, what's happening with our mood overall. So thinking through with a, your doctor, for example, what's a plan if you do decide you wanna go off a med, what's gonna be safer for your mood? It could be things like when you're sick, taking time off, right? If you have that ability to, or uh, seeing the doctor if you need to. So kind of, again, all things in this category that take care of our basic needs in order to keep us a little bit more emotionally stable when possible. Okay, oh, somebody's saying, what about hydration? Yeah, totally, staying uh, hydrated is a big thing. And again, we're thinking about things we can offer to our clients. You know, I always try to have like protein bars in my office and water available for them at least um, because a lot of our clients don't have access to regular meals. And so doing things like that can sometimes help. Uh, somebody's asking, what do you do when you have a terror nightmare? So um, again, that uh, would be actually a good thing to reference in the um, nightmare protocol that I mentioned from the DBT workbook. All right, so let's talk next about interpersonal effectiveness and then we're gonna wrap up. So interpersonal effectiveness is the module that is focused really on skills that will make you a more effective communicator 
who is more likely to reach your goals. And your goals might include things like saying no, asking for what you want, uh, maintaining relationships, or keeping your self-respect in difficult conversations. This also includes things around making friends, which is really critical, I think, for our clients around their support systems and building, uh, or excuse me, ending destructive relationships or toxic relationships. So I'm really gonna give you just a um, real sneak peek into interpersonal effectiveness. There's a lot here in this as well. But before we get into it, I think it's important to think about what are the specific barriers that our clients experiencing chronic psychosis face when it comes to being effective communicators. So when we are working with each client, we need to assess each of these areas so we can adapt our interventions to manage these specific needs. So the first is PTSD and trauma, right? I mentioned how common that is amongst our clients yesterday. Um, but this is often uh, something that is going to get in the way of clients' willingness to trust others, right? often to ask for what they want or say no, right? Having experiences where you've been punished in some way previously or traumatized when you were trying to get your needs met can make us less likely to wanna ask for things or say no. Um, it can also impact our confidence in making requests, even just um, things like, you know, uh, if it's culturally appropriate, making eye contact or sitting up straight and making somebody look like you mean business when you're saying no or saying yes to something, right? There are so many impacts that this can have. Next around social anxiety, again, very common amongst people with psychosis and thinking about the way that uh, fear of judgment, which is often the core of social anxiety, can impact our clients' willingness to want to go out and do anything publicly, let alone make requests or build relationships, period. And again, for both of these things, so for PTSD and for social anxiety, we have actually really good treatments that are exposure-based protocols that I highly recommend using with your clients. Um, I think in particular, one great way to do some of this around social anxiety is having groups when that's a possibility in the communities you work with, right? And having people practice social skills together in those settings. Next are things like negative symptoms of psychosis. Again, we spoke about that a little bit yesterday, but the idea that it can be difficult to read some of our clients' affect or facial cues. And so part of this might be around helping our clients learn to verbalize um, how they're feeling to express that again to others. So saying things like, I'm feeling pretty happy right now, for example, because it may not be easy for other people to tell. And that can be a barrier to being an effective communicator and building those relationships. And lastly, uh, suspicious thoughts, right? That make it harder to trust others in communication um, and that our clients may not be as forthcoming or willing to build that trust with others in relationships. And so again, this I think is really where CBT for psychosis and some of the strategies around that can make a big difference in our clients' uh, interpersonal effectiveness functioning. So we're gonna go briefly through one of our skills here. It's called Dear Man. And Dear Man is a skill you can use in two different ways. If you can use it either to ask for what you want from somebody else, or you can use it to say no. And you can use it in either way. And the example we're going to run through together is asking for something you want. So because many people experiencing psychosis tend to develop their symptoms in their late teens and 20s, which is really a time of very uh, typical emotional and social learning milestones, one of the results is that it's common for our clients to miss out on many important skills when it comes to communication and relationship building. And 
The skills I think from interpersonal effectiveness module here in DBT can be particularly helpful for addressing these skill gaps that our clients may have as a result. So let's think about Dearman, and we'll do this together with an example. Um, I'm going to call her Sandra. Um, and what we're going to be looking at is Sandra has a partner that she lives with who goes out and often comes home late but doesn't communicate with Sandra where he is. And that causes Sandra a significant amount of stress. It also impacts her sleeping, which we know, again, sleep and stress are two things that tend to increase psychosis for most people. So Dear Man is essentially a tool that we can use either as a script, if you want to just be reading through it with somebody, or a guide to help us think about how we can ask for what we want in a more effective way that's more likely to get us the results we want. So the first step is to describe. And describing means really stating what the facts are of the situation. This is not your opinion. This is not the impact it's having on you. It's simply like, what's going on? So Sandra might say something like, you told me you would be home by dinner, but you didn't get here until 11, right? So just the facts. The E is for express. And express is when you share how this is affecting you, right? What the like I part of this, the, the part that is relational. So Sandra might say something again, like when you come home so late, I start worrying about you and that's hard on me. And I tend to stay up late waiting for you, which then impacts my sleep, which then is more likely to increase my psychosis. So really sharing about like why it, it matters to her, right? What's the impact it's having on her? Next is asserting. And this is the part where you ask for what you want and you do it real directly and really behaviorally specific. So Sandra might say something like, I would really like it if you would call me when you're going to be home past 11 p.m. or whatever, something specific that again, that client, or that sorry, that other person who's involved in the situation knows really clearly when we're talking about. Because we don't, uh, one of the biggest things, right, is if I say something like, call me when you're going to be late, being late means something really different to both people in this relationship. And so we want to be specific around it. So Sandra says, I would really like it if you're going to call me when you're going to be late. Now, R is for reinforce, and you've heard about the importance of reinforcement today. So this is when you are trying to increase the likelihood that other person will do what you're asking by finding a reason that they might want to do it. So Sandra might say something like, I would be so relieved and a lot easier to live with as a partner if you were to call me when it's past 11. Right. So essentially, like, I'm not going to yell at you every time you come home after 11. Right. She might be really blunt about that, for example, because at least I know to expect you're going to be late. Now, next part here, stay mindful, is the idea that you want to be a broken record when the conversation gets off track. So probably many of you have gone into a conversation planning to ask for something, and then you notice the conversation goes in a totally different direction, totally goes left, either because that other person brings something else up, or you get nervous, or I don't know, whatever's going on. The idea here is to bring it back to what you want, right? So Sandra might say, I would still like a call if it's going to be after 11, right? And she might need to repeat that many times throughout that conversation to keep the focus there. Next is to appear confident. We tend to get results more likely, or we're more likely to get results from other people when we look confident in our request. And in this situation, right, in any situation, it's important to be adjusting, of course, for whatever is culturally appropriate for what confidence looks like for that client. 
But for example, that could be something like sitting up tall, making eye contact if that's appropriate, just sort of showing somebody that you, um, you mean business essentially. And lastly, if we are not getting what we want yet, we might need to negotiate. So this might be something like, what if you text me instead if you think you're going to be late? Right, trying to find some middle ground you could both agree to. Or even using a skill called turning the tables, which is where you say, what do you think we should do? I can't just stop worrying about you. So what do you think? Right, kind of turning them to them to come up with maybe a, an ex or a, a something that would work. Here's the thing, right? In general with interpersonal effectiveness, one of the things we always tell clients is you can be like perfectly effective and do a really kick-ass job doing a dear man and you still might get a no, right? Like we can't actually control other people. We can try to influence them. We can try to negotiate this, but it may not happen. And that's okay. But sometimes we can get clear on what we need when we get an answer from somebody else, right? Meaning even if it's a no, so it might be about like, is there a shift that needs to happen in this relationship, for example, because I'm not getting something that I need that's important to my mental health or my, you know, my relational health. Um, or it also could be that we can feel more of a sense of confidence of like, at least I asked, right? I've been spending all of these years not saying anything and it's made me feel terrible, but at least like I put myself out there and I can feel proud of that, for example. So one of the questions that I then often get is from clients who then say, well, I don't know how hard to push for this. Because what we often find is for our clients who experience emotion dysregulation is that they often either go to one extreme or the other. They either push for something too hard or they push too little, one kind of extreme or the other. And when we push too hard, that can sometimes damage the relationship. And when we push too little, that can sometimes damage our sense of self-respect. So this is this tool called Options for Intensity that talks a little bit about what are um, some of the questions we could ask ourselves to get a clearer picture of how hard to push. So for each of these questions, if you say, if you know, hypothetically Sandra says yes to them, you it's 10 points with the idea that it could add up, there's 10 questions that could add, add up to 100 at the most. So we're going to go through these questions, and I'm going to give you what I think Sandra will answer. Of course, she has to be the one to answer these questions. But the first one is, is this person, my partner, able to give or do what I want? Right? Do they have a cell phone? Right? Do they have the ability to communicate with me? We'll say yes. Is getting what I want more important than my relationship with this person? In this case, I might say no, but we'll see. Will asking for help make me feel confident and self-respecting? Yes. Is the person required to give me what I want? No. Right? If this were the case of maybe like an employee that you're working with, or if it's a parent, there's different relationship power-wise, but your partner isn't required to do anything, actually, unfortunately. Am I responsible for telling the person what to do? No, definitely not. Um, is what I want appropriate for this relationship? Yes. Is asking important to any of my long-term goals? If Sandra's long-term goals is having like a healthy partnership that maintains like healthy mental health for herself, I would say yes. Do I give as much as I get with this person? Meaning, have I been asking for a lot of things without giving very much, right? Because you want the scales to be a little bit more balanced. So we'll say yes in this case, although we don't know for sure. 
do I know what I want and have the facts I need to support my request? Yeah, I think she's pretty specific about what she wants. And is this a good time to ask? Is the person in the right mood, right? So this is the difference between asking when it's 12 o'clock, you know, in the middle of the night, when you're already angry and that you're in a bad situation, that person versus are you asking this question or making this request maybe the next day when you're both feeling more calm? And we'll say just yes, because we're going to have Sandra be more strategic. So let's say we get 70 points total, right? What we're going to look at is this chart here that gives us an idea of how hard to push. So what you see here at the top is if we get as little as 10 or even zero, we don't want to ask, we don't want to hint, like this is not the time and a good idea to make this request. And all the way down to 100, which is like, don't take no for an answer. You answered yes to every one of those questions. In this case, we got a 70. And we're sort of saying that that means ask confidently and resist no, meaning that that means we actually do want to push, not the hardest, but we're actually pushing quite a bit on this. This is important. It's important to her mental health and to her physical health and to her relational health too. So this is, again, just another tool we can use as part of this. Okay, I'm noticing a question in the chat and then I see two hands up, so give me just one sec. So I've had clients say that Dear Man seems too formal to use in, in daily interactions. Any advice on how to address this comment? Yes. I am not going to have a client do a full Dear Man in all situations, right? That's not possible. And certainly things also come up, you know, uh, when I don't have planning ahead of time to write a script either. When that's the case, what I tell people is use the principles of Dear Man, right? You don't need to have a scripted out conversation, but to be able to say, how can I be fair to that other person, right? By describing the situation just the facts. How can I describe the impact it's having on me? How can I be specific in what my request is, right? Kind of just generally using these principles rather than having to go line by line. I, it's very rare that I have clients who have a natural conversation that goes line by line. That's just not how communication works. And it's not how this tool is really designed to be used. It's more like generally, how are you going to go into this conversation prepared? And what are ways in which you're going to kind of keep the conversation on track when it inevitably gets off track? So that's what I recommend to clients in that situation. And to me, that means they need to practice it, meaning like you don't become like a natural, effective communicator until you've done it quite a bit, right? Until you've like made that part of your repertoire and you feel more comfortable with it, et cetera. And so I do a lot of role plays with my clients. Um, I encourage them to use this skill in situations that aren't super intense, like where it's not like there's an urgent need to have this conversation. It's just like, I need to like ask to borrow five bucks for my mom or something, you know, something a little bit lower stakes. And just as a way to kind of practice and build that muscle up a little bit. All right, so why don't we do this? Since we have, I think, just about five minutes left, I want to take a break here so we can go to more Q&A. So I'm going to fast forward just for a second here. We're going to go past our behavior chain for a moment. So I want to give you some more resources. Again, three hours is not enough to be a DBT clinician. Um, it's really also not enough to get so deep into this material. I would really think of this training as like kind of starting to um, do a little bit of a dive into some of these things that you can start using right away. And I encourage you to start using, but not quite enough just yet. So if you want more training, um, some of the places I would recommend, so the organizations at the top half of the slide are organizations that are run by and for people with mental health issues and particularly around psychosis. The bottom three things here are pieces of literature, books that focus around this. So the book on the left is my book that's about what we're talking about today, DBT Skills Workbook for Psychosis. And the two books on the right are Dr. Marshall Linehan's original sort of DBT books that really dive into the skills in a more deep way. 
There are also other organizations that can do more training with you, like Behavioral Tech, for example, which is sort of the gold standard in DBT, Portland DBT, et cetera, where again, you can take this a step further. So what I want you all to do right now, um, before we go to Q&A, is um, I want to encourage you all to do what I call comment waterfall, which is many people go to trainings and we get like, we like leave being like, oh, I have so many great ideas that I'm gonna start doing from here. But in reality, only like one or two things seems to stick with us in the long term, right? I often have that happen with trainings. So I want you to think about what you've learned in the last two days or even your own ideas that have come out of this training. And what I want you to put in the chat is one or two pearls of wisdom that you wanna take with you and start using right away. And you can go ahead and put those in the chat and we'll do what's called a comment waterfall, which is where everyone's comments come down. Okay, so let's see what I see coming in so far. Radical acceptance of voices, try the earplug foam and herb surfing tip. Oh, you all already ordered cold packs, love it. Awesome, way to get on it. Pros and cons, tip, herb surfing. Oh, a lot of love for tip today. Distress tolerance skills, dear man, alternate rebellion. Normalizing psychosis across the spectrum, yes. Wonderful, awesome everyone. Love all the things you're coming up with here. Urge surfing, fantastic. Radical acceptance, okay, amazing. I'm so excited for you all. Thank you all for your patience, your time and your energy the last uh, three hours we spent together. Please uh, you know, start using this stuff, put it into practice. I hope it's really helpful for you all. And thank you for all of your hard work with the clients that you're serving. I really appreciate you all. So take care and hope to see you again soon.